Good morning. Uh, I'm Carly Anderson, and I am reading scripture this morning. Our text today is in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When I was in seminary, my wife and I had two other couples with whom we were interconnected in numerous ways. Uh, The two gentlemen were fellow seminary students with me at, at TED's Trinity, and both of their wives and Laura worked at the same place, and we all were part of the same a small group at church. So we inter- intersect in lots of ways. And even though the paths for each of us have changed a little bit, one of them was heading toward pastoral ministry. I was heading toward the academic world and the other was heading toward missions. So it was kind of fun to see at that moment how each of us were finishing the same degree, but heading in different directions, even really around the world. One of those uh, individuals was Eric Hesse, who preached here not long ago, who's ministering in Berlin, Germany right now. He was here just about a year ago. But the other friend, his name was Steve, and his wife was named Alyssa. I remember we, Laura and I had dinner with them at some point when they had been overseas and were beginning their training, and Steve got a head start in learning this foreign language before his wife did, and they told us the story where they were sitting in a prayer service, which is really what the church would do, pray, and then they would move on to service. And they were sitting there, and Steve was understanding the language, and at one point he kind of got a little emotional. His wife leans, Alyssa leans over to him and asks, what's going on? And Steve says, they're, they're praying for our country. And she just responded, well, that's very nice. He's like, no, you don't understand. They're, they're praying that we might experience refining suffering. And she got a little angry at that. What do you mean you're praying for suffering? Should you be praying for suffering or refining suffering? That's a good question. The topic of suffering is what James 1, 2 to 4 hits on. Philip Yancey wrote a book regarding suffering and he mentions a theologian who I've read much of his stuff. He's got the coolest football name ever. ever. His name is Helmut. I mean, if you don't play football and your name's Helmut, something's wrong. Helmut Tilica, good, good reformed theologian. But this is what Tilica's concern is when he was asked about America and Philip Yancey suggests he might be right. That the greatest deficit to American Christianity is an inadequate view of suffering. Think about that in the richest country in the world, where things like comfort and service, we are all experts on. In fact, I, I remember living overseas for three years and coming back and getting in someone's car and realizing that their car seat was more comfortable than any couch or chair I'd sat in overseas. We love comfort. We're death-free. We don't want suffering. We've tried to control all variables so that our lives can be avoidance of that. How does a Christian grow and blossom in a culture that is 
catechizing you in every other category to be suffering free. It might not be a surprise then to find out that the prosperity gospel thrives in America, lots of other countries, but it thrives in America more than any other country in the world. This is fertile soil for God is my cosmic butler and divine therapist, and he gives me good things. Well, if the greatest deficit to American Christianity is an adequate view of suffering, James has a few things to say to us. We're going to look at the two or the three verses that Carly just read. Hope you have your Bibles open and you can look at it with me. And as we just sang, that that newer hymn from the Gettys, Speak, O Lord, we just sang. I looked back, I saw the lips moving. You just asked the Lord to speak into your life. As Greg rightly said, that was as much a prayer as a praise. You just prayed, Lord, speak from your word. So I'm going to pray likewise, and then we will listen to the Apostle James. Let's let's pray. Father, speak, O Lord. Give us the food from your word, as we just sang. And even if it's hard for us to hear and harder for us to live, we, like James, want to be slaves of Christ. And so minister to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in these three verses, I think the easiest way to understand what James is saying in verses 2, 3, and 4 is to suggest he's answering three different questions. So you'll see in your notes, I list three questions, and I think each verse is responding to those questions. Here is the first. How should we think about our suffering? James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Note the pastoral tone. He exhorts us as fellow children of God, as siblings. He says, my brothers and sisters. He refers to you by that title that reminds you before he even gets to the meat of it. Hey, listen, I'm talking about some hard stuff, but listen, you are God's children. He is your father. And everything he does is done with purpose and to perfection. Don't forget that. It's almost like he's saying, this is going to be hard, siblings. But I need to tell you something important, and I'm with you. Notice he said, my, I'm with you in this. And we know that because shortly after this was written, he was martyred for his faith. I think he and his family knew suffering too. You see, Christianity does not shelter you from adversity and suffering. It's not like Christians have less cancer or Christians have less economic strife or Christians can flee the curse of sin that Genesis 3 describes. It's not like we can avoid that. If a war strikes our country, we all face it. Disease and plague, they affect us like everyone else. In fact, did you know statistically, just as many Christians die as non-Christians? There's proof right there. It's not like we aren't dying. And everyone else is. Christianity doesn't shelter you from adversity and suffering. The word trials is the key one. Vera used that term when she was speaking to our kids and to us. 
That's the term translated by your NIV. Whenever you face trials, that, can, that term can be broadly defined as external affliction or persecution. So external affliction would be suffering in the world, and persecution would be suffering by the world. And he actually, in his letter, addresses both. But the one he addresses the most is not persecution because you're a Christian, but just the suffering that all people face. Like specifically, he mentions illness and financial difficulties as two versions of trials and sufferings that Christians will deal with. And he talks about those later in his letter. But what maybe helps us is that he adds trials of many kinds. That helps us apply this to the numerous forms of suffering in our broken world. But then he begins with the way we should think about our suffering. And it's, feels, it feels unnatural. Maybe, maybe we read the beginning of verse 2 and we just kind of jump into other stuff. But did you see how he started? Consider it pure joy. We need to define this carefully. Joy does not mean enjoyment of suffering or a constant state of happiness. Not at all. It means a settled contentment in every situation. That is so important to get. If you want to kind of know the gist of what I think James is answering to the question, how should we think about suffering? It's this. You and I as Christians should have a settled contentment in every situation. Joy is in reference to our state of being, not our emotions. There is this weird kind of reaction to suffering, at least in the Christian circles I've been in, where we, we try to deny aspects of grief. Or I'll even hear people say, I know I shouldn't be crying because they're in a better place in reference to a funeral. And I'm thinking, what do you mean you shouldn't be crying? Of course you should be crying. Of course you should hurt. It's not like you have no nerve endings when you become a Christian. Meaning a Christian knows all aspects of what it means to be human. And what do humans do? They love other people. And when somebody is gone, what do they do? They miss them. They mourn. They cry. They wrestle with it for a while. They put their trust in God. So please don't hear that statement as considerate joy, like I should be happy they're gone. No, not necessarily at all. That's part of the curse actually. But in the midst of it, you have this settled contentment. Like a person, like an athlete that has their feet planted right. They're ready. They're not just tipped over when somebody bumps into them. They're settled. They're balanced. Content. So that term joy is not referring to our tears. It's talking about our trust. It's not saying that it doesn't hurt. It's simply saying that we trust in God in the midst of it. If you want examples of this, seemingly every funeral Jesus went to, he cried. Did he, was he some kind of stoic machine? Speaking like a robot? The very man, Lazarus, who he would raise himself that day when he went to the tomb and he felt, when he felt the death and he saw the suffering of his two sisters, Jesus wept. 
I'm so thankful the Bible shows that. And don't ever be the Christian that tells somebody or feels like they're not supposed to cry. Be human. Christians should be the most human. And then there's this important word, consider. Consider is a verb of thought, not emotion. Right, so it's not pitting them against each other. It's just saying in the midst of all the motion, all the feelings, in the midst of all the panic, what do I do now? In the midst of all the swirling of your experience, they were, the verb consider is not commanding us to control our emotions, but commanding us to think properly about our circumstances. James is pastoring us to make a proper decision about our situation when suffering comes. When we are faced with suffering, the Lord wants us to look at it and respond to it with the full perspective of God's goodness, provisions, and purposes. That is so hard to do. Let's just be honest. That is not easy. That's why he has to command us exhort us. Here's what you do. When your legs get knocked out from underneath you and all these emotions of panic come, you gather yourself and say, I know the Lord is good. I know I can trust him fully. I don't know how. I don't know all that he's going to do. I'm not even sure how I'm going to moment in the next moment manage all that I face, but I know his purposes and provisions, and his goodness are true. Like that second song we sang that was newer to Greg, but I remember singing that song in my Christian experience in the past, talking about God's grace and goodness and gifts. A Christian response to suffering is not stoic detachment, but eschatological expectation. We know that God will renew all things. We know he is the great healer and the ultimate redeemer. In fact, for the Christian, present suffering is never fully answered in the present. It's always answered from the past, the resurrection of Jesus, and from the future, the return of Christ. Christian, you will suffer. Now, I'm preaching to the choir in this moment. I said this in first service too, just thinking about those of our brothers and sisters who are present in the first service and those of you sitting here in this very room now. There are numerous people who are suffering. How are you going to think about it as you go through it now or when you do? Laura and I and the kids are going through this right now. Probably everybody in the room knows that almost exactly five months ago, Laura was diagnosed with ALS. There has not been a day in those five months I have not ached some. Every day. Every single day I felt that ache. Unavoidable. It's not, I can't escape it. And I'm, I'm going to be human. I'm not going to be stoic and act like it doesn't hurt. Oh, it hurts. Tons of questions. Tons of fears, all of that, as a parent, as a husband, as an individual. 
This verse challenges the way I'm supposed to think. It challenges the way you're supposed to think. You see, you and I as Christians should know that this is where we need to have a theology of suffering. That's what Yancey and Telica and others are concerned about, right? If we have an inadequate theology of suffering, again, theology, the word theology doesn't mean you, like, you have this doctrinal list you've memorized. It means you have certain instincts. Theology is a set of instincts that when something happens, you instinctively know how to respond. It means you have a set of spectacles when you know how to look at the world and yourself, and your family, and your community, and you know what you're seeing, even if it appears unseen. That's what theology really is. So the theology of suffering balances the fact that there is this thing called common grace. As we sang about, and Greg rightly mentioned that second song, that God created the world, and seven times, which is a significant number, called it good. But that's Genesis 1 and 2. By the time we get to Genesis 3, there's this thing called the common curse. And those aren't pit against one another in the the sense of we're living in the already but not yet with common grace and common curse. So some days it is so beautiful seeing somebody holding a little brand new baby in the hallway and they're filled with joy at this beautiful life. And then other days you're overwhelmed with the reality of death and pain. Welcome to the simultaneous reality of common grace and common curse. Theology, a theology of suffering helps you look at the world the right way and respond to it with instincts that are driven from Scripture and on top of that, a spirit living within you that guides you and cares for you. Just a side note, how should we think about suffering? Let, let me give you one more illustration. If Jesus embraced suffering and saw its good purposes, how in the world could we decide it's a bad thing? Like It's not like he's like, oh, I don't suffer, I'm God. No, God entered into the common curse world, totally suffered at his own will, and did so for purposes that were ultimately good. We we call an entire day Good Friday because of that. If Jesus can embrace suffering and see its good purposes, how can we not? Verse 3, I think, is answering a second question. What is the purpose of suffering? In, in, in essence, it's like this. After, and after teaching us how we should respond to suffering, James now explains the why. And I'm actually thankful that verse 2 moves to verse 3 because it's one thing to give us the command to embrace contentment, settled contentment, and, and, and to know that God is working in these things. But, but, but help, me, help me get a little bit more oomph, Lord, as I'm in, embracing it. And here he shepherds us and says, I'm not just going to tell you how to respond. I'm even going to explain why. He's letting us go behind the curtain or the backstage. He's letting us lift up the hood and see the engine so we can understand what he's doing. Meaning he's not just speaking to our hearts. That's verse 2. He's speaking to our minds. That's verse 3. He says this, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let me translate that into our words. When we suffer... We are to understand and believe that God will use our suffering in such a way that we are formed by it. 
Now, you may not like that kind of an education, school of hard knocks, whatever you want to call it, but here's what James is saying. Here's how purposeful God is. When we suffer, you and I are supposed to understand, that's knowledge, and believe, that's commit ourselves to, that God will use our suffering in such a way that we are formed by it. James' words are that there will be a testing of your faith. This is not a testing in the sense of pass or fail. It's a testing that proves the worth of something. It's an approving. Maybe you could almost translate it that way by means of interpretation. The Greek word is test. I don't want to change the word. But the sense of it is, it's an approving of your faith. I will refine your faith in such a way it will make good. Like a goldsmith who allows the silver in the fire or the gold in the crucible to be purified not longer than necessary, so God purifies the righteous. The test of our faith in suffering, therefore, verifies that our faith is genuine, that it meets the standard that it perseveres. So think of it this way. Suffering is the common process. How strange would this sound in the American gospel of death-free, suffering-free, prosperity only? Suffering is the common process by which God purges us of impure things and purifies us for the purpose of strengthening us. Again, not to challenge your faith, but to awaken your faith in the fullness. I'm pretty good at theology. And I know the Bible pretty well. But with an ALS diagnosis, I got challenged. It's not just about head knowledge. It's about actually trusting that God is God. It's about actually believing that he will care for our needs or the worry for my kids or the sadness for my wife. I think that's what the word perseverance is referring to there in verse three. Remember what verse three says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance is not a weak, passive submission to suffering and difficulty, but a strong, active, challenging response in which the satisfying realities of Christianity are proven in practice. It's literally believing that God is a faithful God. It's trusting in Him when it doesn't look feasible. Would You would not recommend this path nor do you want it, yet you willingly, strongly, contently say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, next time you want to pray the Lord's Prayer, be careful what you're praying. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you respond to suffering? Let me ask you this. Do you 
respond to suffering as a gracious ministry from God for your life. Probably not even how we thought about suffering. Again, remember that warning from Yancey and Telica? We, we might just have an inadequate theology of suffering, a deficient view. Last week, you sang a song that just struck me as we were singing it, and I twisted Greg's arm that you will sing it again, whether you want to or not. Blessed be your name. I don't know if you noticed it last week when you sang it, but it is an interesting collection of verses. I, I couldn't get through it without tears coming down because I listened to the words. So you don't miss it, I'll read some of them to you in preparation for our closing song. What I love about it is it lists something extremely beautiful, like that little newborn baby in your arms, and then it lists something extremely painful, and it puts them side by side. Listen to this. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Next verse. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. In case you didn't get it, a whole different set of contrasts are sung next. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me. It's like, a, it's like driving a convertible. When the sun's shining down in me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. Get ready. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. One constant between those two contrasts is stark. No matter whether it was positive or negative, what phrase was repeated over and over again? Blessed be your name. So the person who just is holding this newborn baby and feels like they're driving down a road in a convertible with the sun shining on their face cries out, blessed be your name. And the person who's driving on the road marked by suffering says the exact same phrase. That are the in, those are the instincts and habits of a theology of suffering. Last question that I think verse 4 is answering. I frame it this way. How does God use our suffering for our good? James ends his introduction to the important role of suffering. Remember, it's an intro. Like, he'll bring this up again. He's going to circle around this. The three that Vera mentioned are suffering, are, are finances, and wisdom. And those other two are boom, boom, next couple of weeks. But he ends his intro to the important role of suffering by exhorting us to accept suffering in our lives in such a way that it does its full work in us. Here we go. You ready for being countercultural? James says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Notice the unnatural request. This is the total opposite of what you would instinctively think. Let suffering do its work in you. Everything in us wants to avoid suffering. Everything wants to avoid it. And you were just commanded to let it do its work. 
How do we do that? Again, this is why James uses that word perseverance. Perseverance is not the goal. It's the road to reach the goal. Perseverance is the refining process, not the finished product. Perseverance means with strength, courage, and an active trust in God's goodness and purposes, we receive suffering as a refining process by which we allow God to work in us and ministerially almost guaranteed it'll work around us. That's hard to do. You got to have guts. You got to have settled contentment to say, God, I don't like what you're doing at all. And I don't fully understand how long it's going to be or all the ways it's going to hurt. But I know that your surgeries are not just for your glory, they're for my good. And suffering is often your scalpel. James give the, gives the goal at the end of verse 4, stating it both positively and negatively, just so you don't miss it. Maturity and completeness, lacking nothing. We return full circle to where he started. We are to consider suffering as pure joy so that in the end, we can be purified. Mature and complete Christians who've been refined by God. Refined in all the normal ways, God uses evil for good purposes. Think, think about that for a second. This isn't God being vindictive. This isn't like him hurling sinful suffering and consequences on you. He doesn't need to. We've chosen that world. Welcome to Genesis 3. That's already there. But what's amazing is God, and only God, can take sin and use it to form saints. Only God can do that. I've I, I mentioned it before, but, but I can't get past it because I think actually in the plot of Scripture, it's important. The end of Genesis, remember Joseph and his brothers and all the trials he went through? And literally the last chapter of Genesis, which serves like a prologue of the rest of the canon, the rest of the biblical story. He makes a fascinating comment where he says, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. So now you think of all of the common curse, all the intentional evil in the world. Sickness, disease, war, financial ruin, relational chaos. And somehow God is so good. He's so good and so powerful and so sovereign and so intentional that he can use that evil, that sin, to form saints. And Genesis told us in the beginning, that's exactly what he would do. So hear this then, by way of summary. The goal of the Christian life is not self-actualization. It's not being the you you want to be. It's actually a God-intended maturity. So think of it this way. We often ask our kids, especially little ones, what do you want to do when you grow up? We were laughing. It was just this weekend when our middle child was convinced he wanted to be a leaf blower. And we're like, you mean like landscaping? No, I just want to blow leaves. It's going to be pretty hard to find a job where it's just leaves. I'll find it. I just want to blow leaves. Okay. 
And you laugh because you ask the kids that. And usually you're hearing the kind of comments, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, imagine this question instead. But instead of asking yourself the question, you have to ask God. God, what do you want me to be when I grow into maturity? What do you want me to look like when you grow me into maturity? And if you were going to be a leaf blower or hopefully a landscaper, you'd probably have to do trade school or training or connections, lots of experience. There'd be some work to do. Well, if God is going to mature us and a common surgical scalpel is suffering, then it might just be. But not just for some of us, but for all of us. There's some suffering, some refining suffering. Remember the prayer of our brothers and sisters across the globe? Praying that in the wealthiest, most privileged country in the world, that Christians would be catechized less by culture and more by Christ. Pick up your, does, it, does Jesus say, pick up your lounge chair and follow me? Did he say, pick up your flat screen? Did he say, pick up your retirement account? Or did he say, pick up your cross and follow me? Remember, I warned you, right? You, you could have skipped church for about three months when we're going through James. I warned you that wisdom literature, what, you know what it likes to do? It likes to get in your business and challenge how you live. So let me ask you one closing question. If the greatest deficit to American Christianity is an inadequate view of suffering, how have these three verses in James helped you remedy that? That's not a quiz that you take with paper and pen. It's not a test that's essay or scantron. This test is lived in three dimensions. It's lived body and soul. It's lived as humans who have tasted the common grace of God and yet in various ways experienced the common curse, common curse and have developed, Lord willing, instincts, spectacles, and intentionality for suffering purposefully. And that can only be by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit and the support of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why James wrote that to we, his brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, you know right now the people in this room who are suffering. You know the burdens that they are facing. The brokenness that they feel the ways that they are tempted to flee rather than to faith through their suffering. So I would ask, Father, that just as we prayed and sang at the beginning of our service today, that you would use your word to speak to each of us where we are. Lord, on the road marked with suffering, or though there's pain in the offering, may we be able to say, blessed be your name.
Help us, refine us. O faithful Father, in whom we trust, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.